You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. In the 1980s, facing the pressure of the feminist movement and the sexual revolution, a group of conservative Protestant pastors and thinkers banded together to champion traditional family and church structures. In 1987, they formed the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. The new movement called itself Complementarian, reflecting a belief that men and women have equal worth but different roles. In 1991, Crossway published the flagship Complementarian text, Piper and Grudem's Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, a response to evangelical feminism. Almost 30 years later, however, some argue that the biblical manhood and womanhood paradigm has had a harmful effect in our faith communities, and that churches need to disciple both men and women toward participating in the kingdom and passing on our faith to the next generation. Welcome to Christian Humanist Profiles. Here to speak with me, Katie Grubbs, is writer, speaker, blogger, and podcaster Amy Bird, author of Housewife Theologian, No Little Women, and Why Can't We Be Friends? We'll be discussing her new book, Recovering from Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, How the Church Needs to Rediscover Her Purpose. Welcome, Amy. Hi, it's good to be here. I'm very excited to talk about this book today. Um, There's so much that is thought-provoking in it, but I actually want to start on the cover, um, because it's very arresting and super (laughs) interesting. Um, And the cover of this book depicts peeling yellow wallpaper, peeled away uh, to reveal a picture underneath of a woman and that's a metaphor that you use in the book to frame your argument and that came from Charlotte Perkin Gilman's uh, 1892 story The Yellow Wallpaper which our listeners may be familiar with and the first question I had for you is just did you have the idea for the book and then connect it to Gilman's text or did the story actually inspire the book? Yeah it kind of happened organically Um, as the book was forming in my head um, I wasn't aiming to take such a direct approach um, against the Council of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood and, you know, be so critical of that directly. I I originally wanted to write a book about discipleship for men and women, um, which it very much still is. But in the planning stages of the book, I realized that I really had to um, directly address the roadblock <laughs> head on. And so I had read the yellow wallpaper um, I don't know, within the year before I was planning the book. And so it was still very like freshly disturbing <laughs> in my mind. And so that metaphor, I, it just really popped into my head of this yellow wallpaper um, and how it symbolizes, you know, the patriarchal attitudes and constrictions um, within society, but also within the church. Um, and I really kind of wanted to use, borrow that metaphor, but use it in a little bit of a different way, uh, talking about the blind spots that we still have even now today, um, in the church. So it kind of organically worked together. Um, it wasn't a before or after, but, uh, kind of at the same time as I was cooking up this book in my head, um, you know how God works that way sometimes with our ideas. He just kind of presents things before us and it all connected together. So I was very happy with Zondervan's cover design as I was working with them on that. Yeah, I, th- I thought it worked so well. And that story, my I, I'm a college teacher and my students are often very disturbed by by that story. And it's I think one of the most mm-hmm. chilling things about it is that the, the husband in the story thinks he's helping, yes. which makes it so much creepier. <laughs> 
Right. And, you know, she's participating in her own oppression in a lot of ways through most of the story until, until the end. But, um, you know, one thing I really was left with at the end of that, that I wanted to change in the way I'm using the metaphor is that, um, yeah, you know, she's peeling the wall, the yellow wallpaper. She's getting crazier, right? Yes. <laughs> but um, I wanted to use it as a, a peel and reveal. Like if we peel away this yellow wallpaper in the church, um, it's not going to be some ugly wall with no answers behind it. But um, we're going to reveal something much more rich and beautiful that's in scripture, which is, you know, the real reason why I wanted to write this book. So um, I have this section at the end of each chapter peel and reveal. And so it's kind of the, so what section <laughs> and, uh, you know, trying to, to uphold scriptures, beautiful design of man and woman and, and of his church, his bride, and, um, then present that back to us as, well, what do we do with this now? I thought that was some of the, some of the most fascinating parts of the book. I, I thought were places where you were kind of going back into scripture and showing that, what's going on now is it's not as if it's identical to how things were going, um, you know, in the new Testament, for example, or so the, mm-hmm. I, I thought that that fit really well with kind of the idea of peel and reveal is not, we're not going to peel something away and create something just from right. nothing that's never been seen before, but instead reveal maybe what was always there in scripture. What was always there. Yeah. And it's so beautiful. It's kind of like when you, you move into an old house and you have that ugly carpet and you, discover beautiful hardwood floors underneath. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, well, the title, the title's Recovering from Biblical Manhood and Womanhood is obviously riffing on um, Piper and Grudem's text, um, and which was kind of the urtext of the modern complementary movement. And why did mm-hmm. you find, I know you mentioned this a little bit already, but why did you find it important to engage that text by name, really both in the title of your book and in the rest of the book? Yeah, so the teaching from that book has so saturated, uh, especially the complementarian church, but I would say much big, broader evangelism than even complementarianism. Um, and it's so saturated the way that we think about men and women now. We're just in this this culture and we don't even know it. So but again, the yellow wallpaper really plays uh, uh, as a, a good metaphor for this. Um, so I felt like as I was writing this book about discipleship, I can't write it without addressing all of these um, extra biblical and I would argue unbiblical um, baggage that's put on so-called biblical manhood and womanhood and how that affects not only the way that we view one another as brothers and sisters in, in Christ's church, but then how, you know, what we even think about discipleship and, and how we have two different aims uh, being taught in discipleship so-called biblical manhood and, and so-called biblical womanhood, how all of our resources that are marketed to us are along these lines even. Like there's so much that needs directly challenged to be able to, I think, really talk about discipleship among men and women in the church today. So, um, and my editor said to me as I was um, putting the proposal together for the book that they know me from my direct voice and that's how I write well. And so instead of, you know, just pass passively uh, talking about those issues or, or ignoring them to, to want to reveal the good stuff, you, you, you have to peel back all of this baggage that, that we're swimming in right now um, and compare that to scripture. So I did, I took a direct approach um, knowing that it would 
certainly have some more blowback than I prefer. Um, you know, you want the book met with, with welcoming arms, <laughs> yeah. but, uh, I think it, I think it was needed. Do you feel like if, um, if you'd kind of tried to dance around it and not necessarily written against specific people's ideas or specific books, do you think there, there could have been, um, responses that, well, this isn't really happening because you didn't, you know, mention right. any specific places that it's happening? Does that, does that make sense what I'm trying to say? Yeah, it does. I mean, people downplay it. Um, and I know that, you know, even in academia, it's interesting because um, a lot of academics in the um, church don't read the popular level books. Mm, and, you know, mm -hmm. I'm a laywoman and the popular level books are saturated with this stuff. So, um, you know, we're being indoctrinated with this stuff. So um, I wanted to lay it out there and show that, um, no, this is everywhere. And I want to compare it to scripture. And, and I think when you do lay it out there, you see just how prevalent it is, just how saturated we are in it and just how unbiblical it is. So um, sometimes we, we have to look right at it. That's actually a really good transition to the next thing I wanted to ask you, because um, I think you're right. I mean, so, so often, particularly books that are marketed to women, a lot of times, um, I would yeah. say male pastors, but particularly male kind of academic theologians just don't even have any idea what's being said to women. Um, right. And I and I noticed when I was reading the book that your your research for this book is really wide ranging, and in it you're citing complementarian people, but you're also citing egalitarian and mm -hmm. feminist writers and scholars, and a lot of Catholic mm -hmm. thinkers. And mm -hmm. why did you find it so needful to explore so many different realms when you were writing? And and what value do you see for for complementarians in particular to read outside of their usual avenues? Yeah, so um, I'm kind of seated within, since I'm a member of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, I'm kind of seated within the, the complementarian tradition. And um, as I was, you know, researching and, you know, basically indoctrinated throughout, you know, throughout my adult years with complementarian writing, um, it's been not only unsatisfying, but also extremely frustrating. And I'm finding it, so much of it to be very one-dimensional and um, and a lot of that teaching that is very reductive of our sex. So um, I, you know, not all complementarian writers are like that, but I was not finding a whole lot of richness in uh, a lot of the verses about this, uh, that are targeted to women in the church about, you know, what our quote-unquote roles are or um, even the value and dignity of our sex. So um, I found as I began to read more broadly, um, I was very intrigued by Roman Catholic scholars. Um, Pope John Paul II, his theology of the body, um, and his, also his letter to the church on the dignity of women. Wow. I mean, what a treasure trove. And then uh, Sister Prudence Allen, again, such good work. Um, of course, I'm not Roman Catholic, so um, I'm not going to agree with everything that in there. Um, I had a, a lot of Roman Catholic bones to spit out, but um, boy, was I learning from them. And then I, I found so many uh, egalitarian scholars who very much uphold the authority of scripture, which, you know, you're told as a complementarian that that's not the case, that, they're, that egalitarians just want to twist scripture and, and don't uphold the authority of scripture, found excellent scholarship within, um, within egalitarians as well. And in which I was learning and being sharpened from. 
Um, so I, I see the value of, of reading outside of our quote unquote circles. Um, and we're gonna re we should read all of them with discernment. And so not only should I read those outside of my circles with discernment, but you know, I found very early on that I need to read within my own circles with a lot of discernment because they're getting things like the doctrine of God wrong when they're talking about some of these issues, which um, is pretty scary, uh, pretty serious error. So um, I think that we grow and learn by reading broadly, and especially when we're talking about issues such as this, I think we need to, to hear what others are saying. Um, you know, I'm no radical feminist, but I certainly have learned some reading feminist scholarship, and I see where, you know, a lot of their critiques are, are right on. So we need to listen to one another and then um, learn and grow. Um, and listening to you talk about um, all of that and about finding sources from, you know, different areas, it made me think of years ago, I, I was uh, listening to something, uh, I think it was a podcast episode or maybe even reading an article um, in which someone on the, the very conservative complementarian side was um, was saying that we uh, they were talking about the feminine mystique or some kind of some some very you know earlier some earlier feminist texts and they were saying well you really should, mm -hmm. just shouldn't even read this like you just shouldn't even consume it and I remember thinking as a scholar that horrified me the idea that yeah. you wouldn't um, you wouldn't even want to know what was in the thing that you were trying to criticize or that mm -hmm. you wouldn't want to um, have some idea of how their argument was being structured I mean you can't even really knowledgeably refute something if you don't know what's right. happening in it and I so I loved that when I was reading through the book I, I really enjoyed seeing all those different perspectives um, because it does it creates this richer tapestry of what is said on the topic across the mm -hmm. board um and uh to to go back just for a minute to we were talking about um kind of peeling and um showing different things in scripture you in several of the chapters you talk about this concept of gynocentric interruptions in scripture so can you kind of give us a little definition of what does that mean gynocentric interruptions yeah, so that's a term I borrowed from Richard Balcom, um, which I found really fascinating from his book Gospel Women. And he's kind of in that book talking about the function of the feminine voice in scripture and, um, and, and what we learn from that. And so scripture is more of an androcentric uh, text. It's, it's male-centered mostly in its writing. And so it's funny because this term gynocentric interruption has offended quite a few people and, um, or just even people who I think appreciate the teaching on it have said, well, I just, I don't particularly care for the term. I, I find it pretty fun to use. <laughs> but, so, so gynocentric interruption is kind of where the feminine voice interrupts um, this male dominant uh, voice in scripture. And it usually serves to function as um, kind of telling us the story behind the story or making visible the invisible. Um, and it's all throughout scripture. And, but the big, I think the big thing it really shows us, and this is really quite amazing when you think of the, the patriarchal culture in which uh, scripture, you know, the times that scripture was written over all the time that scripture was written, and even the fact that uh, women barely, you know, for the most part, uh, didn't have even a lot of education, um, but that their voice is not only in scripture, but that it's teaching us 
And it's also showing us how women were traders of the faith. Women, too, were active traditioners handing down um, our profession of faith and our experiences in, in the faith. And so we wouldn't have so, so much of scripture if it weren't for the women passing it down. And that's pretty amazing and pretty uh, thrilling for me to think about. I know that um, you, in the book, you were arguing that these that these uh, that that these interruptions are proof that scripture is not actually, you know, a solely patriarchal construction. Do you think then, if the women's voices are kind of there all along, and we get glimpses of them in these different moments, should we quibble with the term interruption, or do you think that that because it feels kind of disruptive, or do you think that that's appropriate? Like, are they are they kind of bursting in, or is this something that is being woven in? Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does. And, and that's a really good question and something I think worth discussing. I think the value of using the term interruption is that um, it's showing it's it is showing us this uh, making this um, invisible visible or showing us something extra, the story behind the story. So it does kind of interrupt and show us something that we wouldn't get from the male perspective alone. Um, and I often feel that way even today. <laughs> um in, in not only a woman's voice, but I think those who speak from the margins um, are showing us often a lot of the time what we can't see on our own. And it does interrupt us a little bit. It, it can make us defensive even. And so um, I think that word interrupt helps us think about like, what is our response to what, what's being revealed here? Um, and I, you know, I think the gospel itself interrupts our, our default thinking. Um, God's grace displaces us in a lot of ways. So um, I, I think of the value of the word in that way, but I do see what you're saying too, that it is woven throughout scripture. And, and so often it, it doesn't seem like an interruption, even as uh, Richard Botham uses uh, the book of Ruth as kind of a prime example of, of how to understand this. Um, it's told uh, really with the feminine perspective uh, through Ma- Naomi's perspective and Ruth's perspective, um, a widow and a Moabite woman. And so we kind of enter into their experience through this narrative form, even though it's it's not a woman writing the text per se, we get their we get the story through their perspective. And so we see it differently. But then at the end, all of a sudden it's like uh, it's totally shifts gears and you have this patrilineal um, genealogical succession. And you're thinking, OK, well, this is the male voice. And why did it? look like it's just cut and pasted at the end there. And Richard Bauckham says it's to kind of expose the inadequacy of just the male voice, that it's the same exact story in this patrilineal genealogy that you get in the narrative as far as what's happening, like this, this family line that's happening, the important part of the story that we're getting to at the end. But you miss so much about God's Hesed love um, with just the male version. So I think that, you know, there's a lot to consider in, in how we view the feminine voice. And we, when we use the word interruption, I don't mean it as a, a negative thing, but more as a revealing, a revelation, a further revelation to our default modes of thinking. That's, a, that's really interesting um, to kind of think about it that way. It makes me think of the difference between the, the genealogies of Jesus and like Matthew that Mm -hmm. versus kind of Luke's depiction or discussion of Jesus's birth that has so much more information from Mary Mm -hmm. and tells you the same exact story, but with a very different, um, 
spin or not spin spin sounds negative perspective maybe. yeah yes thank you a diff yeah a different perspective yeah it gives you her feelings what she was feeling and thinking throughout the whole process and so it creates a deeper picture of the same story like that yeah. by by yeah. introducing that female viewpoint yeah I see what you're saying um and uh okay so I wanted to go back to something at the very beginning you mentioned a particular word and this is a really big deal in the text so in chapter four which is titled why our aim is not biblical manhood and womanhood you kind of walk through the ways that cbmw has used the word role in describing mm -hmm. how men and women should interact and how which you know i mean it seems like a, a fairly common word it doesn't seem like a big deal but how has that mm -hmm. definition of role shaped complementarian discourse in negative ways yeah, so this is something that I learned from Kevin Giles, and it really, um, it made me stop after reading this in, in one of his books, because I realized how easily uh, vocabulary can be changed and manipulated, and uh, we don't even realize realize it in our reading and in our thinking. And so this word role, um, it, you know, it, it was originated as a theater term. And we obviously know what playing a role means, right? And and it started being used in the 1960s uh, as people were talking more about it in um, as a societal term. But we find with CBMW that the word role is, is kind of what, uh, what Giles says, a code word for fixed power differences. And, and it's based on gender. So they use this word um, not as playing a role, but... Um, as our actual identity, um, our, our ontological being, our essence. And they use that to then teach that men are ontologically, uh, have a, an authoritarian role and women ontologically in our very being are subordinate. And, um, they even use this to talk about God, um, which is very unorthodox talking about Jesus and his very, essence is subordinate to the father's authority, um, which causes a lot of problems and is not according to our ancient creeds. But so this word, we need to be careful with how we use it. And then uh, even in their Danvers statement, which they uphold as, you know, this is the important thing that we all need to agree on. They say that distinctions in masculine and feminine roles are ordained by God as part of the created order and should fit an echo in every human heart. So that's like their number one point. And they're using that word role as an ontological word, the very thing that distinguishes men and women. And yet we don't see anything in scripture about needing to follow cultural role stereotypes for our, our gender. As a matter of fact, we see Jesus actually transcending the stereotypes of, of his time. So I find that very concerning. And I myself have tripped on my own usage of this word roles over and over because I've been so trained, I feel like, to use it as a fixed term when it's not. It's really interesting, too, because the, 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 that's the word that's chosen role to kind of express this ontological identity or these things that they feel like are innate in men and women because mm -hmm. I feel like the same the same kind of complementarian sphere where you see that you role used that way a lot would absolutely disagree with kind of modern g theories that gender is performance, right? Mm, that you're performing yeah. your gender, you know, um, and then it may or may not have anything to do with your biological sex. But I think they would absolutely reject that idea. Well, um, and so it's that. interesting. 
Yeah, I've written about that and, and gotten so much pushback saying that you're using the exact same language as like the transgender community. Um, act like a man, act like a woman, mm, like gender mm-hmm. is performative. Um, and as and, you know, I argued metaphysically that our our bodies and our souls, you know, come together and they're not uh, one can't act different from the other. <laughs> so um, but yet I don't. For some reason, I I haven't heard a good response to that. They get very angry about it, though. I really enjoyed, and I can't remember which part in the book it is, but at the very beginning of the book, you said, you know, kind of were arguing that whatever you're doing is womanly because you're doing it and you're a woman that it's not right you know and and I that was that was actually that found a really interesting echo I had recently read like a couple of weeks ago um Abigail Dodd's book Atypical Woman which Mm. she's very much writing from inside that kind of sphere too but she says a very similar thing in her book um that I know I was fascinated by that because I was not expecting that um Mm -hmm. I was not expecting her to say you know whatever I what things that I'm doing or I'm doing them as a woman and you know um so I don't know I mean I don't know what that means but um I I really appreciated that um because I think in some ways um I don't know. This is uh, this is maybe a little bit too personal, but in some ways, I don't necessarily fit the you mm-hmm. know the typical conception. I mean, you know, when like my husband and I both have PhDs, um, mm-hmm. and we're not there are some in some ways in which we are not as distinguishable from each other in our um, our things we do and our attainments. And so mm-hmm. it's I I always appreciate seeing acknowledgement that you know it's not um, that it shouldn't be gendered performance, um, but uh, right. yeah, I it, mean. As human beings, we're soul, body, composite identity. So everything I do, like the very essence of who I am is is feminine because I'm a woman. So if, you know, if I don't fit in the box of whatever the cultural stereotypes are, that doesn't make me less of a woman. And I think that that very type of teaching of this performative uh, femininity, per se, um, has caused more gender identity confusion. It's not helped. And and you even find it within the transgender community. Like, I wonder, like, why is it that so often we see it um, acted out with the gender stereotypes, the, the biggest gender stereotypes of when the transgender community, which I very much feel for the, the gender dysphoria. However, how is it that dressing like a pinup girl is what makes you feminine. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, if you, if you, especially a very, a quite young person who mm-hmm. might be very impressionable, if you, if that person doesn't fit in the box, you know, in the past, maybe there would be more allowance for different types of men or different types of women who are nevertheless. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Whereas now it's like, oh, well maybe you're just the other thing. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. I do. Yeah. And I mean, and that's, I feel like that's a, a kind of definitely a part of, um, kind of the harm caused by the, the stereotyping. How do you think this, this idea about roles, how has that um, not just a kind of affected us psychologically because the thing it has, but how has that affected the way that men and women labor together in the church or don't? I'm... Yeah, it separates us in, in ways that it doesn't need to. And, and it also keeps women at arm's length from being in the theological and intellectual and creative heart of the church, which is the very place that uh, we're called all called to be. And like Jesus said to Martha about Mary sitting at his feet as a disciple, that um, she's doing the necessary thing. 
Um, but now not only does it not seem necessary for women in the church, but um, we've, we don't even have any agency to be there in a lot of ways. So um, I think that it is really hurting Christ's church because we need that male-female reciprocity and dynamism to grow um, as a church. We all need to be um, promoting one another's holiness. We all need to be communicating the gospel to one another so that we can commune in that and hold that together. And um, if we're over overly separating everything and even our men's studies and our women's studies, while there's um, certainly benefit in having exclusive studies, and I'm not condemning doing that, but the way that we have so catered and separated towards it and marketed uh, our resources to, um, to that way, I think we're sending the same exact message as uh, the radical biblical feminists who we would balk against when they say that the Bible is a patriarchal construction um, put together by, by the powerful men. Um, because when we send resources to our women, um, we're, the way that we are, we're sending that same message that the Bible is so male centered that you need your own, um, you need your own products. You need your own resources to be able to understand it. And I was thinking when you're talking about Ruth too, that, it's such a poverty and it's such a shame that you never see like the book of Ruth taught from the mainstays in church to a mixed group because mm -hmm. it's, it's such a beautiful depiction of, of, you know, God's pursuit of us and, mm -hmm. um, and God's grace. And, but I think that that happens too, where, because, and, and I don't even, I don't think it's always intentional. I, I like your, your phrase about blind spots, because I think, you know, if, if our preachers who are preaching to us, they're, if they're all men and theologically we, you know, we would agree with that in our complementarian churches, but they're still living within their man's perspective. So there are things that they might not notice or they might, it might not occur to them to talk about. And so I, like a, a year ago, I taught a, a kind of a class to my ladies at church on women of the Bible that don't get press. So mm. we didn't talk about Mary. We didn't talk about Ruth. We talked about mm -hmm. like the, um, the Shunammite woman. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the kind of ministering women around Jesus, the ones that some of them don't even have names, but, um, you know, people like Joanna and, um, and, you know, uh, and the, the Hebrew midwives, like we kind of walked through mm -hmm. the Bible and talked about this woman and most of my ladies and a lot of my ladies were in their sixties. A lot of them said, I've never heard of any of these people or nobody's wow. ever taught me anything about any of these people, which I mean, some of them have read the Bible cover to cover. So I know they read those stories and maybe mm -hmm. didn't really mark them or did, forgot about it, but they said no one had ever taught a lesson. They'd never heard anything taught about any yeah. of those women. And it was so sad. Um, it is so sad. Yeah. And so just, um, I, that's, that's one reason. Another reason that I, I really enjoyed the book is because I think that, 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 you know, the idea that we should be, um, have that reciprocity of voices because yeah. it benefits men too. You know? Right. I mean, we're not, just, I'm not just writing this for women. <laughs> I, I, we're, the men are, you know, they're, they're, they have their own poverty from not being able to benefit from this dynamism. Um, it's both of us. So, and it's not God's design for his people. So I think it's very important because the ch whole church is going to hurt from it. And kind of bouncing off of what you just said, um, my pastor's preaching through Second Samuel right now. And so just like, not even as a topical um, thing, but we just got to the part of Tamar's rape and um, by David's son. And my pastor spent a good portion of the sermon talking about Tamar's words 
And he just said, look at her words. Hers are the righteous words in this whole story. Um, and so he's reading through them and, and talking about them. And then he says, but how do we even have her words in here? And why are they recorded in here? It's because God sees. And, and God wants us to see this story through the eyes of Tamar. And it was just so comforting, so uplifting to hear my pastor saying that. Like the function of the feminine voice there is to bring the reader in and see the injustice, see the pain and the destruction happening and, um, and see her voice as the righteous voice um, out of all the voices in that text. So you know, it was very encouraging to me. And even the fact that uh, those words are there, her story was told. She had to have told it you know, for it to get passed down and put in scripture and it had to have been listened to and recorded. That's, that's incredible. I, mm -hmm. I, I would, I would love to hear, to hear a sermon like that because so often, um, it's not, you know, it's not something that's, um, being, being discussed. And I think there's maybe a fear too. I think some pastors worry about, you know, trying to, trying to talk about those female voices because maybe they don't want to overstep or they don't want to seem like they're trying to, um, you know, I don't know. I, I was reading, a, I was reading a kind of popular book on, on, you know, these, like the idea of gender roles and, um, but in, in the book, they, the, the, the two men who wrote the book said at one point that only a woman could really tell another woman how to be a godly woman. And I thought, well, that's a nice, that's a nice admission. But then they wrote the chapter anyway on how to be a godly woman <laughs> themselves. And I was thinking maybe have a woman write the chapter. Like, it was, it was like they were halfway there, like, um, you know, but, and it's, and it's not true that, I mean, it's really, it's not true that right. only a woman could have I anything agree. to say to another woman, but, but there's, you know, I wonder if that's one reason that some, some men hesitate to write or to talk about even some of these female voices in scriptures because they feel like they can't relate. Um, and maybe it's easier to just talk about Paul some more or to talk about, mm -hmm. you know, David, um, who they maybe could feel like they could identify with more. Um, and, uh, and really, I think that I, I also, when I was reading your book, I also kept thinking about Dorothy Sayers, Are Women Human? Mm. Um, which is one of my favorite essays. Um, mm. But because uh, she, you, you mentioned several times in the book that we have so much more in common, men and women really yeah. then then is different and that's one of the things that she hammers on in that essay is that you know when people would ask her well as a woman what do you think about this and she would get frustrated right. because she's you know i were have you is that a text that you have kind of been uh have have read or have ever interacted with or yeah that... i have read that several times it's been a while since the last time i've read it and i go back and forth because i very much resonate with what she's saying at this tokenism kind of isn't it um the woman's perspective um, and she wants to say, look, I'm an individual human being. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I have more to add to the conversation than just as a woman. But, um, I also think there is value in looking at the perspective of a woman in general. So I think it's kind of both. And, mm, uh, we, okay. yeah. we need to be careful not to token it. Um, but then we also like, for example, what you were just talking about or, uh, with the book or like that I went to a marriage I went to a, a reform conference once on, and it was on marriage and sex. And I wasn't there as a, mainly as an attender. I was there for, for something else I was doing, but I did slip into one of the sessions and I thought, what in the world? This is a conference on marriage and sex and all of the speakers are men. Stop and, 
So, oh no! And I'm looking around, and the only women there are like much older, you know, and they're very much in the minority, and they're probably just there coming with their husbands. And I just thought you're losing audience because uh, you have a very limited perspective. And I'm looking, I'm looking at the speaker who's talking about sex, and I'm thinking, I do not want to learn about sex from this man. <laughs> <laughs> you know? But then at the same time, I'm thinking, you know, I don't want to like be rebellious as I'm thinking about this, but do they have nothing to learn from women on this topic? Yeah. Like, you know, I need to be willing to listen to men on this topic, but they need to be willing to listen to, to women because we, that's the only way we're going to learn about that together. Absolutely. Um, yeah, <laughs> 100%. <laughs> um, so I wanted to ask, um, and this will kind of be our last question because we don't want to, I don't want to take up too much of your time, but um, I wanted to talk for a minute about labels, which is something that comes up near the end of the book. You mentioned in the book that you no longer consider yourself complementarian, but also are not, not going to identify as egalitarian. And that was really interesting to me. What, what value are you seeing in, in occupying that liminal space between these two camps mm-hmm. that are really often at odds? Do the, does, does the, do the labels matter? And, you know, how does, what's your thinking on that? Yeah, I think my, my um, question in that is, are these labels helpful? And they can be helpful in, in some ways, but um, for, as, as for what what my conviction, my biblical convictions are about men and women, I do not find them helpful because um, they're so they're movements, they're pretty contemporary movements, mm-hmm. and so there's all of this baggage attached to the movement itself, and um, a whole bunch of baggage that I don't support. Uh, so that's why I, it would take me longer to explain like, you know, <laughs> a whole book's worth of, you know, what's attached to this movement that I find very troubling and, and why, you know, in order to qu- qualify to call myself a complementarian, it's much easier for me to say, hey, I'm a confessional Christian. Um, you know, I'm in the Presbyterian Church. I uphold the Westminster Confessions of, of the Faith um, and certainly our ancient creeds. And, um, and within the bounds of those confessions, you know, I uphold uh, male headship in the church that only qualified men can be um, can be pastors and elders. Um, but even my answer for that, I think, would be, you know, have a lot of differences than what a quote unquote complementarian would say. Um, so, you know, I think that some people just look at those and think, well, this question these labels mean, do you think a a woman can preach, (laughs) you know, or do you think a woman can be the head of her household? Um, And so people try to use uh, qualifying terms like narrow and wide complementarianism. And I just don't find that 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 helpful at all, especially as I've seen those labels be placed on me and know that they're not representing my viewpoints well. So I just find it a lot easier to, um, enter into conversations on, you know, things that I think are more meaningful in talking about this without um, putting labels on people that don't belong on them. I think sometimes too, the, um, the, the labels are, are more, you were talking about how is the label useful? I think sometimes the labels are useful in certain kind of theological circles, but a lot of times in kind of regular life, they might not even mean anything. 
Um, I I brought up complementarian, the term complementarian one time with uh, some of my ladies at church, we were talking about something else. And one of my friends in community group said, well, what does that mean? And I, and I explained it and she goes, oh, okay. Yeah, no, I I feel like I'm probably that, but she had never heard the term. I mean, our church, Mm -hmm. you know, our church's doctrines, because we're at the moment we're in um, a Southern Baptist church. Um, We used to, when we were, Mm -hmm. we moved a bunch of times, my husband and I, and for a time we were in the PCA. So we've had different kind of um, denominational homes, but she, you know, our church is adhering to that doctrine. And she, after I explained it, felt like that's what she believed, but she never even heard the word. Right. You know, and so I think sometimes in, in kind of, for those of us who read tons of stuff about this, maybe, you know, forget <laughs> that it's not necessarily a day rigor for all of Christian society, even to use terms like that or to use labels like that. Yeah. And even within egalitarianism, I find that there's a wide range of what that means. Um, so I, I want to explore what, you know, more specifically what that person, um, believes and is, is teaching. Um, and so I, I, so I often, especially with egalitarianism, like, oh, well that's egalitarian dismissed. You yeah. Know? So we mm-hmm. use labels to dismiss people. And, um, I think, wow. <laughs> uh, and, and like you were saying earlier with, um, them recommending, well, we, I wouldn't read that book because it's written by an egalitarian or it's written by a feminist. Um, you know, the yellow wallpaper was written by a feminist. I, there's a lot that, uh, Gilman did that I don't support, but, um, that was a valuable book for me to read. Um, I think that, uh, it's, it's been so nice to be able to, to hear, uh, so much, uh, you know, get more richer texture too, um, from you about your thoughts as you were writing the book. And I really, really appreciate you, um, coming on to talk. I wanted to ask, um, before we close, is there anything else that you wanted to say about what's in the new book or, um, you know, what you hope the book accomplishes or anything like that? Yeah. I, you know, I want to say that I think my book is just scratching the surface, uh, you know, introducing some conversations that, I believe, especially from my speaking all over the the place and talking to so many women and the emails that I get, these are questions that a lot of people are asking and men. Um, So I think that church, you know, my hope is that this is just a humble beginning. (laughs) And and I would love for church officers to lead the way. And um, I have questions at the end of each chapter and people are going to arrive at different conclusions and that's okay. I think that um, there's a lot more that we need to learn, and we just need to talk about this with, with humility. There's a lot more I have to learn. Um, I have a lot more questions still, and and I I find it very uh, exciting as we discover you know different answers within Scripture and and what the Holy Spirit is saying to the churches now through His Word. So I just encourage humility in learning about this stuff, and um, we're going to have some differences, and that's okay. I really appreciated the discussion questions because it kind of helped when I would finish each chapter, it would help me, it would recrystallize for me what I just read, you know, as a kind of, Mm. in a kind of summary fashion, but also, you know, give me a kind of thought provoking way to respond. And I appreciate that Mm -hmm. too, because it, it shows that you're not saying, and here is my word, I have spoken. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, and this is how it is, you know, um, that, that questioning posture like you said, is encourages humility, which in the reader, um, which I think is, is so useful. Well, thank you so much for, um, for being willing to come on and talk on Christian Humanist Profiles. And um, we really appreciate uh, your, your uh, perspective. 
um, on these issues. And thanks again. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I really enjoyed the conversation with you.